Back in the day, it was only 12 50 or 13 bucks, like obscenely cheap when you think wow. now that you buy a burger for fucking 20 bucks or something. Mm. And so the conversation internally about that was, what do you think this is really worth? So you're sitting here, Jason's come over and looked after you. He's talked to you about this awesome beer that we've got from Bodriggy down the road. You've got an awesome playlist because we've got a DJ that's curating it. You're in a seat that's really comfortable. What's that worth? Raw, a podcast by Lightspeed and Poe. This is a podcast about the highs and lows of running a hospitality business. In collaboration with the Poe Network, which you've come to know with a conversation amplified. We have frank and open discussions about the state of the industry from the best leaders in hospitality. We aim to capture the extent of how far conversations can go. Uncensored, stripped and genuine, powerful and grounded in confidence. We unpack the unique first-hand experience from the experts tackling the very real and at times intense issues in our industry. Now let's get into today's show. Officially opening in Fitzroy in August 2014, Bell's crave-worthy chicken, great booze, vinyl-friendly soundtrack and legendary parties quickly proved to be a damn good recipe for success. Having locations in Melbourne and Sydney and now growing into other venues in 2023 as well, it's amazing to sit down with the CEO, Joss, today on the podcast. Joss, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today, mate. Um, Great to have you here. Now, as always, I know a lot of people are going to know what Bells is, uh, especially if you live in Sydney or Melbourne where it's such an amazing brand in the fried chicken space. But how did you start out in hospitality yourself and then how did you come to work at Bell's? Firstly, thanks for having me, mate. Um, Look, my starting out in hospitality story, I feel like as I get older, it becomes more relevant. So I was at uh, school, wanted to leave school, probably 16. Like school was was not my thing, mate. It's something about, I think it's something about being told what to do and not having the opportunity to figure it out for myself. Like I'm that tactile, I got to touch and feel it and figure it out. So wanted to leave. My parents sent me to good schools and they were like, there's no fucking way you're leaving until you're 18. That's when you can make your own decision. So luckily for me, I turned 18 in May. And so the minute I turned 18, I was like, where do I want to work? I want to work in hospital. Like I had this this desire to. I'd done a couple of years as a dish at a neighborhood cafe and loved it. Like, fuck it. You, you know, when there's there's someone, especially when you're, you're like you're a young, impressionable person and there was mm. this chef, Joseph, um, big Pacific Island guy, like just such a dude. And I was like, <laughs> this guy's fucking cool. I mean, not appropriate anymore, but like he'd bring in FHM magazines. And <laughs> no, not for the girls, but just for like, how fucking cool is this? Watch this car. And I was like, oh my God, this guy's great. So did that for a little bit. So I was trying to look at what I'd do coming out of school. Definitely didn't want to study. Definitely wanted to work in hospo. And where my um, where I took myself was fine dining. So in Wellington, in New Zealand at the time, the best fine dining restaurant was called Shed Five. Shed Five was owned by a couple of um, a couple of guys, particularly not nice guys. And ironically, both of their partners or wives were lovely, and they worked in the business and ran it. And I, I, I guess I was I guess what I wanted to do was work in the best of the best. I was like, lay it on me. What's the coolest opportunity? How can you really learn from fine dining? And I think probably similar to people going after school or being sent to do military training or something like that. I loved the regimen. Mm-hmm. There was a routine, there was a regimen, and the people that I worked with um, very, very quickly became closer than any friends I'd had 
in school because they were the people that you hung out with, you did bad things after work with, you did good things at work. Like they were, they were, it was, it was your family. So mm. fell into fine dining and, and absolutely loved it and loved more so um, just learning all the different parts of it, you know, and I was a super cheeky 18-year-old, um, got in lots of trouble, had my hand burnt by the um, the French head chef on the, the heat lamp underneath the pass more than once. So got into fine dining, really enjoyed it. And I guess from then what I was looking for was, cool, I feel like I've mastered this. No one's mastered anything at 18, but you feel like you do. So I'm like, I've mastered this. What's next? And what, what was next? I still think to this day in my, I don't know, 20 plus years in hospo, the coolest place I've worked was a pizza joint called One Red Dog. And so One Red Dog, if I could sum it up in a sentence, was uh, all day, so I opened at 12, closed at 1am, seven days a week, pizza, house music, big bar, you came in as a family, you came in as a young couple, you came in as a group, you came in fucked up, you came in like every moment of the day. Mm. And it was the place that people came and pizza, you know, similar to chicken, it's a social equaliser, you know, all forms of life and experience and different people were there doing their thing and it was just this cool kind of moment in time. So I think I, f- I fell into it that way. Getting to um, getting to Bell's is slightly different, much more long, uh, complicated story to get there. But effect- effectively what it was was um, I was living in Fitzroy at the time, knew Bell's really well. And when the opportunity came up, uh, what I saw in the business that I liked was a really awesome established cult brand. And I'd been to Bell's a lot and I think what I could see from the people and it was there was something about it that was far more than just them serving customers. There was... There was something in it. It was some degree of personal connection or affinity to the brand or what it was that it stood for. Um, and I think what I love is a challenge and what I saw was a challenge. Mm. Um, you know, Bells back then and this is sort of pre-2021 was more of uh, – it was kind of in the space between restaurant and QSR, trying to work out what it was. You know, COVID being particularly nasty to lots of um, businesses was equally to the Bells business. You know, it was trying to work out what it was through there. And I think what I was fascinated by was how far can you turn the dial of a product that's incredibly accessible at a very low price point, you know, KFC, Charcoal, uh, Charcoal Charlie's and the like. How do you turn the dial and make it what I've always loved about One Red Dog, which was this bizarre, just a really bizarre place between, you know, takeaway joint or QSR style food, not a restaurant, not a bar, it was kind of none of all of them, mm. but the best parts of all of them at the same time. Um, I guess that yeah, that that's how I fell into fell into Bell's. Mm. If if someone hasn't been to Bell's before, yeah. like how would you explain sort of the brand experience and the service experience? Because if if an outsider is just looking at the brand and your social media like cranks, like it's an amazing social media, gives people good, really good understanding, they might sort of just put it in the bucket of another great fried chicken place. But how have you sort of moved the brand um, to a different position right now? It, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting question. The reason it's predominantly interesting, other than you asking it, is that, <laughs> um, is that just last week we, we were chatting with, um, with uh, an awesome new person. We've hired our first brand manager, Lauren, and Lauren was saying, like, loves the brand, blah, 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 whatever. But what she was saying was it's so hard to articulate what it is. And I was taking Lauren through the journey of how I'd articulate to so many people because it's the classic thing, how do you tell your mum where you work? You know, like, yes. like lowest common denominator, like not necessarily in the same world you live in and how do you explain it to your mum? And then what I said to her, which feels the most appropriate, is it's basically a hot chicken diner. Mm. So the reason I love a diner as a vernacular is 
diners were always the 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 basically the corner restaurant on a busy street, and they served everyone. Were non-judgmental of anyone. It was open all day. It was open all night, and the food was effectively just comfort food that you'd make at home, or someone that loved you would make for you. Mm-hmm. So I always loved the diner. So if I was to say to someone now, "What's Bells? Bells is a hot chicken diner." What does that really mean, though? It's that that's the more challenging question. I think Bells rides um, that line between diner, restaurant, bar, you know, block party, takeaway, chicken joint. Like it rides lots of lines. Um, but I think as as the industry evolves, what I'm enjoying more so is that uh, terminologies around what you are or even sort of brand vernaculars, they don't need to be there anymore. Mm. You know, because that, like if you think fine dining or the evolution of fine dining moving its way into the casual space, the word fine dining now has really different connotations. Like is, I don't know, is um, Cutler & Co fine dining? Mm. Kind of is. And yeah. when you're there, you're like, yeah, kind of is. It's also kind of not. And so mm. I, I think what I'm fascinated by is just, yeah, that journey of how you don't need to call it anything and it becomes its own thing. <laughs> but calling Bells anything is, it, it, it is a hot chicken diner. Hot chicken being the product, um, diner being the, I guess, the feeling, that neighbourhood feeling. Is that hard to create, that diner aspect? I, th- I, think, it's, I think it's easy to replicate, uh, it's easy to replicate what exists already. So if you wanted to do a diner, and there's a few that have opened up really recently, you go to the States, you look at how they're designed, you make the assumption you design that in an Australian context and it feels the same. You do a menu that's, you know, hotcakes or waffles or things like that and you kind of call it a diner. I think the challenge is, is that diners really responded to the market in terms of what people wanted from them. And I think if you take the American diner model to Australia, we're very different from Americans. Mm. Um, and I think that that means that what we try and create at Bells is a very, I don't know, it's a very special, very considered, very layered, but completely unassuming. So if people walk in and they feel like, man, these guys have really tried hard to make this work, fuck, that there would just be, it would be a total failure in the interpretation of a customer feeling the simplicity of what we try and deliver. And behind it are all these, you know, sort of one percenters that add up to be something hopefully really special for people, but on the surface is really simple. Mm. So I think I think it's a, I think it's an easy thing to do to create a diner. I think it's a real challenge to uh, to do something and evolve it and keep it consistent and give it a give it a um, a way of being that isn't um, in a state of location or time or. Uh, yeah, or or, or 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 one way of looking at a neighbourhood, so it can it can localise. Mm. This is more of a question for people coming into brands who are um, overseeing, you know, mid to large brands like Bell's. When you first came into it and you understood it, you obviously loved it. You loved the energy that was created, but you knew that there needed to be some change and evolution in what the brand was doing. How did you make those decisions in the first sixty to ninety days about what you would? actually change in the brand to make it go to this next level in evolution, but making sure you weren't taking out the fabric of what you actually saw Bells to be. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's such a challenge, right? Because the risk of the risk of re-engineering anything is you pull one thread, it's like a blanket, right? You pull a thread and the whole thing falls apart and you go, fuck now, what have I got? <laughs> um, I mean, the, the, the short answer is from the beginning, I knew that irrespective of where the brand was at from a market positioning or a profitability perspective, that the fundaments were, the team had been there a really long time. There was amazing tenure 
and they had that thing that you can't tangibly value, which is just an absolute uh, care and affinity with what they do in the brand. So, I mean, the first thing I obviously looked to do was to understand from them what they thought because I think lots of businesses forget that. You create strategy at a group level or at a a shareholder or, or, or board level and you kind of forget that actually the person that knows more about that business every day is actually the person that works on the floor full time. Mm. And it, it, it's a weird thing. I mean, our business is, you know, I'd say probably 70% casual labor and likely they probably know our business better than our full timers because when they tap in, they're really tapping in. Mm. You know, they really have to hone into it because it's, it's the job that pays for other stuff. So I think it, it's a challenge, but I think what I wanted to do was be respectful to the people that were in the brand at the time. We had uh, Morgan McGlone, who was obviously one of the co-founders, amazing dude. Uh, Miranda Campbell, co-founder as well, absolutely amazing human being. And I think what made me excited to go on the journey with Bells was actually taking on board all of the things that they learned that were great and the things that were shit. Because mm. our failures are our best ways of, of, of building and, and making really, really great decisions going forward. And looking at that fabric and trying to understand that lots to piece together, you know, very established brand, you know, at that stage, six and a half odd years of trading. Um, but yeah, the, the process was really a human-centric process. Ironically, though, when I look back on it and go, how would I do that differently again? <clears throat> I'd probably draw a line between uh, what I wanted to do with the business, knowing that my gut is probably right and taking on board too much feedback. So I think there's a really there's a really tough point where it's personal opinion against personal opinion. Yeah. But if you create an environment and a culture where people can share around a framework of what it is we're trying to do collectively – it's not so much I think this and you think that and you think this and I think that. It's what are we trying to do with this and collectively what can we bring to the table? It's more of a professional way of looking at it than just someone's personal opinion. Yeah, for sure. Um, staffing's been obviously a huge topic in hospitality over the last few years, uh, especially to you know uh, really create the proper uh, change with inside a brand and recruit the right people. Um, how important is building a unique team culture in hospitality to any organization and how are you doing that at Bells? Because it is unique, this diner aspect that you speak of and we've been doing work obviously with 42 Days and with your staff at the moment, like I've really got to understand the service model and, and how human-centric it is. How have you managed to keep the right talent and get the right talent with inside your business? I, I think the guiding uh principle that I have to hospitality and I'm appreciative that the other shareholders allowed me to go on this journey initially was that without great people you can't do anything fundamentally correct unless you run a mechanical engineering plant and everything's roboticized uh, and I think if you look at that as a particular value you can say it but until you really believe it and mean it it won't have value so I think first and foremost people are the essential key to get things done uh, and to build something great so I guess what we evolved that to was if we look after our people in the right way, if we treat them the right way, if we create an environment where they can be themselves and they can feel confident in their own skin and in the environments that we have, they will be awesome, awesome, awesome deliverers of the experience we want our customers to feel. Mm. Like I, I think you and I chatted about that idea. If you treat your customers, sorry, if you treat your team like guests, they'll likely treat your guests like guests. Mm -hmm. And that, that's the philosophy. So, we had that philosophy in mind from the start, definitely challenging through COVID. I think, um, you know, lots of people were being offered lots of money, lots of interesting opportunities along the journey. Uh, and we, through COVID, were trying to figure out what it was, our game plan was. Um, super appreciative, though, that we've had so many people stay with us for 
a long journey, but also super appreciative that as people decided that Bells wasn't for them that had been part of the journey, everyone left on really good terms and I still feel and consider them part of the broader Bells extended family. Um, so I guess the philosophy was always, you know, treat our people really well, they'll treat our guests really well. And I think part of that is uh, onboarding the right people, part of it is training the right people, but more than anything, for me as a leader, it was getting stuck in and being one of the people. I, I couldn't make decisions that are executive or a leadership level without fully understanding the challenges that our team go through and that our customers or guests throw at them every day. And I think that was a fundamental, um, I guess, toolkit that I took into the role was I love hospitality. I love being on the floor. Um, you know, these days, obviously older, it's more challenging. I, I can't do the 17, 18 hour days, but you can definitely have that philosophy of wanting to be there and understand it fully. Um, and I think part of it really was about building a culture where irrespective of what I wanted or the agenda that I had around strategy was there was never big conversations about commercial stuff. I keep most of the commercial outcomes in our business other than the metrics around the venue performance. I, I keep them relatively behind the scenes. I don't think it's relevant if people can't impact it. Uh, and I think as well, we created a culture where people can be themselves. And what that inevitably does is if, you know, person A is in an environment where they feel awesome, they feel valued, they want to continue to be part of it and grow it, then likely when they're given the opportunity to onboard or hire people or recruit people, they're going to choose people that are similar to them. And I think by osmosis, that's happened. And, I, you know, we've got what, 85, 90 staff or so in Bells now. Um, I can't have, I can't have um, recruited all of them, unfortunately. And I think that the ones that I haven't are probably the better ones because they're actually more aligned to the values of the people that are in the business now. Mm. Has it been hard to let go of some of the things as you've grown the business and maybe not be across every single detail all the time? Super hard, mate. How have you managed that yourself, <laughs> especially with someone who's so dynamic and energised as yourself? Like, you know, I know you like to be across every single detail. Yeah, look, I think the way I look at it is I'm, as everyone is, I'm, I'm always on a journey to grow and to evolve and I can't do that unless I let go of things that – uh, give me the capacity to to step outside of it, and it's it, it's an interesting journey I've been on with it. I you know I lived and breathed bells as a business um, and still do, but far more so for the first sort of 18, 20 months. Stepping away is very very hard. <laughs> like I, I don't have kids, but I'd imagine it's a similar ethos to I don't know le leaving your kid with a grandparent for the first time. Like it just feels like fuck. What if that goes wrong? What if they don't mm -hmm. know who to call? What if they don't this? But what it actually enables teams to do uh, is stand up on their own feet, problem solve for themselves, prove themselves that they can do so much more than they give themselves credit for. Uh, I mean, the only way I fill that void is with more and more stuff on my own radar because I just want to learn and do more. Mm. But it also allowed me to think about the business more from a macro perspective and where we're taking it, um, predominantly about the areas that we can continue to evolve and improve that experience. I think you know, Bell's, I'm proud, is in a really great place and it's, a, it's an awesome business, hopefully for the people as much as for guests. But we can't be static. We've got to always be looking at where the industry is going, but also what our, you know, what our significant point of difference is in the market to keep evolving it. Um, but yeah, definitely challenging stepping away. I, I, don't, I don't have a secret, uh, I don't have a secret formula for that one at all. Do you think, um, do you think more brands, one thing I like about Bell's is it has a pretty tight food program, but the beverage program is actually quite large, yep. which makes it pretty unique. But I'm starting to see more brands do that sort of nationally in Australia at the moment. Do you think that's just going to be a, a growing trend? And if so, like, why do you think that is? Yeah, look, I mean, the premise behind why the Bell's offer is so concise and just to reiterate how concise, it's three cuts of chicken and two sandwiches 
and some sides. But that's basically it, three cuts of chicken and two sandwiches. But if you look at the idea of if you do one thing, you do it really well, you're going to do it really fucking well. And again, when I first stepped into Bells, Bells had been playing in that uh, limited time offer and how much you need to uh, have interest to spark people to come in. I really, I love the idea of being an institution based on something that you know they do incredibly well. I mean, if Loon decided to start doing muffins, you'd go, that's kind of cool but kind of fucking weird. But but <laughs> yes. like, like, likely yes. what would happen is the focus that the team have, that laser focus on executing croissant after croissant that are of the same calibre and quality, they're going to move it slightly, even if it's 10%. And so mm-hmm. that means they're going to take that focus away. So I think part of the Bell's offer and the philosophy of it was with our food especially is let's be really, really, really good at what we do and we don't fuck with it. So even for our kitchen teams who are, I don't I don't think often considered enough in that decision-making process and the kitchen teams, if they're trying to do 10 things rather than three, they'll put the effort across 10. If they do three things, they put the effort across three. So I think that's kind of part of it. The beverage offer is, is, is a really, um, it's a really cool one. I'm super proud of probably more so Marilyn, our, our head of ops, and how she's run with it. When I first started in Bell's, natural wine was was the big Bell's thing. And to Bell's credit, and, you know, Morgan and Miranda especially, natural wine, when they first started doing it, was like a, what the fuck is that? Like you kind of have it and likely people thought you had it in your cupboard with the vinegar and the oil and you have natural <laughs> yes. wine. And, I mean, even coming into Bell's myself, you know, definitely had an appreciation for it, not nearly to the extent that I now understand it. But I think they were ahead of the curve with that, and I think what they wanted to do was they wanted to make sure that irrespective of whether you were coming in for a, a wing or a chicken sandwich, you could play it your way. And that was kind of this philosophy that I really liked. So our broad philosophy with Beverage and Bells is that we own the high and low space. So what I mean by that is we've got people that will come to Fitzroy, smash a bucket of wings and order a bottle of Cristal. So $60 bucket of wings, $450 bottle of Cristal, and that, that's their thing, and that that's super cool. And the flip side of that is someone can come in, you know, have a $2 wing on a Tuesday, which we don't promote, but if you know, you know, kind of thing. A couple of $2 wings and, you know, smash a pot of Bell's Original Draft for 5 bucks. So the high and low, I think, is a really interesting place because you can cater for so many different uh, demographics, celebrations, people coming in on their special night, people coming in on a weeknight uh, and doing their kind of thing. And I think... I think there's an evolution in terms of that beverage space around what's essentially an explosion of independent beverage companies doing really cool shit. Mm. And it's crazy when you think, like even, I don't know, five or ten years ago, the likes of CUB just dominated beer, CUB and Asahi. Now Mm. you look at it and you go, they still dominate it, obviously, but there's so many players. Seltzer. I mean, if you look at a fridge fridge in a um, a liquor shop, Seltzer's gone mad. Mm. And I, I remember when it first came out, people going, no one's going to drink that. And, you know, now everyone drinks seltzer. Like, mm. it's just, it's crazy. So I think there'll definitely be that. And I think part of what it is, is if you look at the success of big, big, big global brands and, you know, the likes of Starbucks own this so well as customization as a as an opportunity to bring people into your business and to make them feel special, they can have something that's just for them. And it's the same philosophy. If you've got a really broad offer of beverage, irrespective of the food offer, someone can do a, you know, shot of Pappy Van Winkle for 90 bucks or have a Jamison's on the rocks. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think it's the right way the industry needs to go as well because it takes away the elitism of it. Yeah, for sure. I noticed that um, we've talked about this offline as well, like when you came into the business, all of a sudden LTOs, stopped uh the menu condensed obviously but you also didn't talk about price no uh, on social media at all um how many conversations did you need to have with stakeholders in order to change that methodology because that 
is a big shift. Yeah, huge. Uh, look, there's, there's so many layers um, to it, but I guess the, fu- the fundamental foundation that I applied looking at it was in order for Bells to be a strong business, and any business is the same, you need to maximise your operating profit. Big businesses need it, small businesses need it. No one can grow or do innovative stuff without profitability. And I think it's wrong uh, for an industry or for a company to be, uh, I guess, not proud or not want to talk about profitability being a, a defining factor of being able to reinvest in businesses. So I think firstly it was how do we drive better profit to the business? The the assumption I made, and it was purely an assumption, and thank, thank God it paid off, but the assumption I made is as you increase the experience or the perception of value based on experience, what you end up doing is we're not competing on price. We're not competing on, you know, chicken sandwich versus chicken sandwich. One's 10, one's 12. I'm going to go for the $10 one. What we wanted to do was we wanted to compete on experience. So Mm -hmm. the overarching way that we were communicating that with our team was irrespective of what the price needs to be, we need to start giving people more. And you can't give them a lot more other than the table and the chair and the things like that on the surface, but as you start to peer it back, there's so many one percenters that we've got a, like for example, at Bells, we've got a scalloped menu. That sounds weird, but it's a menu that's got a scalloped edge. Every one costs us about 60 cents still to this day. And we go through many, many thousand a week. But what we wanted to do was we wanted to redefine the expectation of coming into a space where the tables were set. Because if you go to grill, if you go to a, a QSR, you don't set a table. You don't need to do that. So we want to set the tables for a start. You're coming to our place, we've set the table for you. There's an experiential part that when you order, you flip it and on the reverse side of the menu, something fun, it's going to get a little bit funner as the as the next couple of months go on. Uh, things like what the music was, things like what the environment was, things like the tactile surfaces. So if you put your hand on a table, was it a cheap, shitty, you know, make-believe timber or is it solid timber? If, you, if you're a brand that aspires to, like Bell's does, you want to do things properly. We want to honour tradition. We want to do things the right way. Real timber is important. Mm-hmm. And so I think what we were trying to do was if we increase the perception of what people were getting, how much could we play the dial of what the price point was? And so I reckon for about three months, we went on the journey of increased perception. So we we painted walls, we changed light fittings, we did lots of kind of small stuff. We did the beverage list, we changed the water glasses out, we changed the service style. So it was 100% table service. You couldn't QR code or table services. We're going to look after you. As we did that, we started to play with the engineering, I guess, behind the sell price. So the classic biggest selling thing on Bell's menu will always be his chicken sandwich. Back in the day, and this is only two years ago, it was only, what was it, twelve fifty or 13 bucks. Like obscenely cheap when you think wow. now that you buy a burger for fucking 20 bucks or something. Mm. And so the conversation internally about that was not so much what do, you want to, what do we want to make money off it. The conversation was what do you think this is really worth? So you're sitting here, Jason's come over and looked after you. He's talked to you about this awesome beer that we've got from Bodriggy down the road. You've got an awesome playlist because we've got a DJ that's curating it. You're in a seat that's really comfortable. The team are there when you need something. Your water's on the table. We top it up for you. The wet white's kind of fun. There's quirky elements. Brand. Like, What's that worth of you eating that sandwich? And that's kind of how we started to play with it from there. The tough thing for us was as we made that decision and as we were starting to see increased profitability on a COGS level, um, everything started becoming more expensive. So we, we, we did this preeminently before everything became expensive. And then inevitably over, I reckon, six months, the cost of goods in probably most hospitality businesses increased somewhere between 20 and 50% across everything from packaging to, you know, dry goods to your kitchen supplies. So I think, I guess the success of what we've done with it is, I think we've found a sweet spot between 
ensuring that the business has profitability so we can continue to invest and involve and make the experiences better, but also ensuring that at no stage anyone, stakeholder, if you think of our team being one, a customer being another, you know, or ourselves as shareholders, being, no one feels like anyone's been ripped off. Yeah, right. Customers aren't like, I can't sell this fucking sandwich. It's not worth 30 bucks. You know, and, and equally making sure that customers feel like there's a real value and it's something they can't get easily somewhere else. Mm. Do you think the fact that the Melbourne, especially in, especially in Melbourne, we're seeing the sandwich space, huge. like huge, right? Yeah, yeah. Nico, Hector's, those kind of guys. Yep. Do you think that's also helped something like your iconic chicken sandwich actually say, okay, well, with the amount of money it now costs, like I'm okay with that because if I go to Nico's, I'm going to spend 16 bucks on totally. a sandwich. Like, do you think that's helped in that context as well? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's probably the, I mean, the, the pardon the pun, but it's probably the chicken and egg, right? I mean, we <laughs> we were kind of on that, it's not a burger, it's a sandwich journey for a while. Uh, we were on the, you know, it's chef prepared We've got real kitchens. We're not buying stuff and it's frozen. But, you know, seeing – I mean, Hector's is just opened down the road for me in Fitzroy. And I mean, the operation in terms of my eyes on it and not knowing the guys, exceptional operation. I mean, everything's from scratch. The mm. the attention to detail and the fit-out, attention to detail and the menu, the service, the uniform, like they've really, really, really ex- executed that ex- incredibly well. But I think broadly I think the industry has grown up now to the perception that bread isn't cheap. It just isn't unless you want, you know, supermarket white bread. Mm. Um, and I think if you want to pay for a quality product, you're going to be rewarded with saying that is a quality reward. And I think, again, part of the success of Bells is you get people that come in once a week, it's their one cheap meal. But if they want to have a cheap meal, it's not, you're going to go to KFC and eat it in the car park and hope no one sees you. <laughs> yes. you know, it's like you're going to go to Bells, smash a sandwich and celebrate doing that and loving that. Yeah, for sure. Um Let's talk about the different verticals in the business because it really what makes Bell's like quite unique. Uh, if you think about Bell's Hot Radio, which you talked about before, the apparel line, Bell's Draft Beer, uh, the original seasoning, which you have on retail as well. Why have you deemed these to be important parts of the business and have gone deeper down this track? Um, and do you think a lot of other brands should actually follow suit as well? Yeah, look, I, I kind of call them um, brand extensions. And I think part of the original philosophy was we're charging more for these things that we deem part of the brand experience that you get at Bells. What happens if you package them up and people could have them in sections outside of Bells would be remembered of Bells when they're kind of eating them. So I think the first one we did was um, Bells Hot Radio was – it just sounded cool. <laughs> it, there was no strategy. It sounded, it sounded cool. But for, for Bells, and it's unique for every business, right, but Bells, you know, the soul of Bells is Nashville in the 60s and 70s. Like that's just the soul of Bells. And so I think that gives Bells the right, if you like, over really owning music as a key part of the experience, you know, like other brands can own other parts of their experience. So we'd always thought that music was a big part of it. You know, Miranda and Morgan had awesome taste in music, had great vinyl collections. The challenge with that is how do you replicate that in five, six, seven, whatever it is, venues at the same time and, and ensure it's curated. So V1 was basically we reached out to a whole bunch of people that we thought were cool and said, can you put some music together that you'd eat with chicken? <laughs> And that, that was this kind of that, that was the Spotify edition of it. Um, I mean, Morgie's one is still by far the the coolest. Um, and if you listen to it, you just you can kind of be at Bell's straight away. You'd expect that from the Godfather, though. Yes. Um, but where we took it from there was that's awesome, that's great. How do you kind of evolve Spotify? Because in lockdowns, everyone became Spotify DJs, and mm-hmm. every brand decided that they needed a Spotify a Spotify kind of offer. Uh, what we've kind of had in behind the scenes is we've got a DJ in Paris, um, DJ Edian, that runs a very cool indie station called um, Secousse. 
So we reached out to him about a year ago, and over the last six months, we've been, I guess, kind of perfecting what that is. So in every bells, at every moment of the day, you know, it's 20 past one right now, every bells will be listening to the exact same track at the same time because we've got a streaming service out of Paris now that is that's Bell's Hot Radio. The evolution for that, we're pretty excited by um, bringing that in front of customers and also doing live sets and venue um, going forward. But I guess that's sort of part of it was the the how do you kind of take the feeling of Bell's and offer that to people outside of Bell's. And then look, in terms of the retail and the apparel, the seasoning was one of those kind of weird COVID projects where I was like, what do we do to kind of keep the brand cool and people can experience it? You know, Bell's Original Seasoning is, is sort of a variation of Bay Salt. It had been on the menu since day one and we've got an, an awesome person in Sydney called Maria that um, mixes all our spices for us. And I said, have you got some kind of cool but kind of shit, you know, shakers that you could put it into? And she sent me a photo of this really ugly squat thing with a massive red lid and I was like, that's that's spot on, one. like absolutely perfect. <laughs> but I guess the the brand extensions primarily were to ensure that there was a connection with our brand for people that really love and breathe it. And there's lots of people that are. And I'm I'm impressed and excited um, and a little bit surprised at how far that's grown. Uh, and I think coming into 2023, uh, that's a big part of what we want to push. And our, our intention has always been we don't look to make any money off it. There's profitability in it um, per unit, obviously, but that's just funding new things that we're working on. It's purely, I guess, kind of just a little bit of a brand um, play and reinvestment to keep it really interesting and keep it innovative. Um, and I think going forward, more brands should kind of fuck in that space because if you've got something that people come in there for, it might be a, I don't know, a chili sauce or a, a corn chip like Tecombi in the States. I mean, their corn chip business, I reckon, will overtake the restaurant business. It's just such a cool product. So I think if you've got something, chances are people want to eat it outside of your restaurant as well. Mm. How do you how do you make sure when you've launched those different um, things in the brand that they go through a filter to make sure that they're actually going to work? Or is it, you know, is it, is it, do you put it through? Ain't no filter. <laughs> just, do you just release slowly and then just get feedback and then and then test and learn, test and learn? Or is it a case of like, Balls to the wall, like this is what we're this is what we're fucking doing. Like this is the way it's going to go, and just see how it's going to go. The latter, right? Okay. <laughs> and, and and look, I, I guess part of it is you know you can have a strategy that's incredibly detailed, and you can build it up. But I really like to spend my time and encourage our team to just do and yep. and, and learn by learn by fucking it up, learn by breaking it. I mean, the great thing about Bells as a brand is it is almost unbreakable unless you fucked with the product, which you wouldn't. But it is it is very very malleable around kind of doing some weird things and kind of stuffing it up. To date, we haven't stuffed anything up that I can that I can think of. But I think more people just need to have that. The low barriers to entry retail product is very low barriers to entry. People overestimate how much it actually takes to bring something to market. Mm. Um, but I mean, we were fortunate that um, Joanne from Really Good People picked it up and distributes it amongst a, a f- just a very cool stable of other kind of indie brands doing cool mm. stuff. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm incredibly impressed with where it's gone, but really excited to see where we take it this year as well. Yeah, I'm excited to see where you take it because if you're doing if you're doing a, a curated playlist, um, I'm dumbing it down a lot. But if you do a curated playlist and then have you know bells, um, beers, and that kind of stuff as well, like you could easily do a chicken block party with yeah. beers and chicken and your own DJ setup and totally. that kind of stuff, totally. rather than doing another twenty restaurants. Like you could just do those as little pop ups and yeah. that kind of stuff. Mate, absolutely. I mean, I guess to give you a glimpse of where I think we'll take it, um, our next restaurant on Young Street, we've we've put in a vending machine 
uh, and not a vending machine that anyone would have ever seen before. I wanted the ugliest, most fucking <laughs> weird vending machine. And it's incredibly peculiar. Um, but the vending machine is, I guess, a curation of things that we think people should have in their lives and lots yeah. of things that we've uh, we've worked on ourselves. So, yeah, it, yeah, that'll be an interesting one. Why did you want the ugliest vending machine? Uh, look, Bells has had this philosophy. It's probably one that I I, I kind of live with Bells, that Bells is not ever obtaining or looking to attain perfection. So I think often people want to refine, 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 yeah. refine, and you get to this point where you've made something too pretty, too perfect. Uh, it, it just doesn't feel like a space that people can be themselves. So if you design a restaurant or a venue and it's very beautiful, you think of that place and you go, like, I don't know, society or something, you go, mm. I've got to wear a collared shirt, probably can't wear my torn jeans, you know, and so you've got to change the perception. Whereas for Bells, I want people to go, I can wear whatever the fuck I want to wear. And the environment by the people, but also the ugliest vending machine, the mm. environment enables people to just be themselves. So there is that really fine line, I think, that we spend, you know, an untold amount of time and energy and passion um, designing our venues and putting so much thought into what will appear very simple for exactly that one reason. And it's that people walk in and just feel comfortable. Mm. You know, so if you have a vending machine and it's, pretty and beautiful and everything's very refined. It, it kind of goes against the ethos of Bells, which is everything's kind of ugly. Like, I mean, a, chick, <laughs> a chicken thigh is not a great-looking mm. piece of food, you know. Mm. It's mm. It, it, it's not a caviar pearl, you know. So you kind of celebrate the ugliness almost. Yeah, so there's beauty in the ugliness. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you find that hard to get to a point of being content with those kind of things though? Uh, yeah, I mean, mate, I, um, I have spent my life working on that one and I think with <laughs> – I think that the advice I'm, I'm always given by lots of people that I, I love and care about is it, it's that thing about perfection is the enemy of getting things done. And so yeah, I, right. I'm always challenging myself because I think my personality wants to work on it until I'm so, so, so happy that we've got it there. But what I find more and more so is actually that last 20% is kind of what fucks it up because the guts of something, if you've got a gut feeling about something and you put your you know, your, your kind of heart and soul and you really just get behind it, it will likely work at 80%. So, yeah, the, the intention is is there to not overthink things, but um, it's in my nature just to overthink things. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why I suppose I ask a question like that is a lot of people who are listening to this podcast, like uh, people like yourself, like they're, um, they're Cra- people crazy coming. people. <laughs> <laughs> they're dynamic people who are running really great businesses. They really want to do the right thing. They think to the nth degree about every single format of the business because their care is so high mm-hmm. for both their people and the brand. And sometimes I think, and I've gone through this many, many times, it's just hard to know when to stop. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's just, does it come through just learning and repetition for you? You go, okay, well, I should stop now. Like, this is enough. I, I think one of the biggest uh, things that I, I take away these days more so than ever is. Uh, trusting yourself and your team. And I think part of it is making sure you're using your energy um, in the right ways. So for me to spend my energy absolutely perfecting a product that might or might not work, doesn't feel like if I had the choice of that or being one-on-one with one of our team and really like getting them through either a tough spot or coaching them through something that's going to dramatically change the business or the people in the business, I look at that and I kind of prioritise my energy around where am I going to deliver the most value to the people that rely on me for it. I I find um, these days especially I find group sessions where we have lots of our team together really humbling and it reminds me that I do what I do not necessarily for any personal benefit, although, you know, obviously you want to be good at what you do. I really do it because I love connecting with the people that, 
trust me to kind of be their leader. And I think when you're looking at those things and you are, you know, relatively active or A-type personality, which hospitality operators often are, I think you need to cut yourself a little bit of slack. And if you prioritise time, it's it's surely got to be on your team. Mm. I mean, the, the delivery of, of return on that, but also just that feeling of, you know, gratefulness for having those people there, incredibly grounding when things can otherwise seem challenging. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, my final question to you is like, what are the plans for Bells in the future? Like this is a brand that has flexed up and flexed down in the amount of venues in its methodology about how it wants to roll out, its menu. Um, you sort of talked about there about Young Street as we release this podcast. It uh, should be nearly open if not open uh, in Sydney. But what are the plans for the future with Bells? No, I mean, the, the plans are exciting, mate. I think what we did in 2021 was we – we took a step back to work out what it was we wanted to be, what it was we wanted to do and how we could play a unique part in the landscape of hospitality, but also provide something that uh, guests or or customers don't have or or we could do better. So I think 2021 was about that. 2022 was proving our plan worked. So it was about simplifying our model. It was, you know, being there for our team. It was being there for all of the challenges that coming out of COVID had. And, And also at the same time, as we were saying, to see the dial move around the business commercially based on that strategy, at what stage do we start to really get behind this? So for us, 2023 is is an execution year uh, in terms of maintaining the growth trajectory we always wanted to do. Um, our, our most exciting project to date is Bell's Young Street, which is um, just up from Circular Key in Sydney. And it's funny, it's one of those sites, you know, you'd swear you wouldn't do a site like that again, as in we generally steer away from precincts now. We've kind of ended up pseudo in one. We generally don't like beautiful buildings because they're not ugly <laughs> and we've ended up in a beautiful building. So yeah. actually we've spent a lot of time making it ugly and beautiful. But I think um, Bell's Young Street is super ambitious for us because I guess it's the culmination of all of the thinking in two years coming together in a physical space um, that, that, that we're pretty proud of doing. So Bell's Young Street, yeah, we're excited to open in uh, in late February. We've got a site we've signed in Adelaide, uh, which is pretty exciting which we're looking to get on site and, and sort of start uh, start building in mid-year. Um, super different in Adelaide. I mean, we've, we've got a different market. It's our, it's our first sort of out of Melbourne and Sydney um, play. Uh, but we're working with um, some friends of ours, uh, Ewart Leaf, who are designers, and also my partner, Vicky. Uh, and the combination of that team along with um, Nick Cox from a brand perspective, I'm just pumped to bring to life what we've really spent a lot of time laboring over. So I think in terms of execution, Bells will continue to execute at the same level because we're passionate about that consistency. Uh, I think that we're, we're, we're going to evolve the menu slightly uh, around the vegan and vegetarian options because I think we've, we've missed that boat as we've focused on maintaining consistency. Mm. Uh, so from a product perspective, we're there. I think from a brand perspective, we've got, um, we've got a few weird and wonderful things we want to play around with um, to make a bit of a song and dance. But more than anything, you know, Bells... Uh, is before my time and, and under my stewardship will always be an institutional brand. We don't want to fuck with it. We don't want to reinvent the wheel. We're not going to suddenly start doing roast chicken or um, or kale salads. We, we, we want to be the um, we want to be the classic comfort food cult brand. Um, we want to be the chicken diner. You're doing a good job at that. Um, strategic question. Yeah. Why Adelaide, not Brisbane? First. Look, lo- lo- love both of them, um, and I think the the true answer is that the opportunity in Adelaide came um, to us before the opportunities in, in Brisbane have, and I think part of that's being open to 
where the world's kind of guiding you to go to. Uh, we had a really good look in Brisbane. I, I love Brisbane. Um, Brisbane, I think, is a market has huge opportunity for Melbourne operators because I think we're more so like Brisbaneites than we are like Sydney ciders. Mm. Um, the challenge with Brisbane again for Bells is we like to have a kind of a, a spiritual home venue that's kind of city located, but also not in the CBD. Like that's kind of what we love. Fitzroy is a, a prime example. Uh, Brisbane's a challenge for that. Brisbane people drive a lot, so the the the, um, the the geography around where to do it was a little bit of a challenge. But we've mm. definitely got a few things on the radar. Um, but Adelaide is just cool, man. I, I'm I'm pumped about the Adelaide scene. Every time I go there, there's an independent operator doing something even cooler. And I think part of what's driven that, which I love about smaller cities, is rents not so much now, but were for many years cheaper. So basically you can be an operator, you're paying the same labour whether you're in Sydney, Melbourne or Adelaide, but you can pay a lot less rent. Mm. And I think what I love about Adelaide is uh, operators have the opportunity to give things a go and prove they've got something or fail quick. And so you've got this really eclectic, very, very independent hospitality space, uh, which for us I feel is is a um, is something for us to make sure that we can deliver at the same rate they can. We want to still be a little indie guy. We're not a big business at all either. Um, but I think also we need to earn our right to be there. So we've worked pretty hard on the site. I, I, I love the scene and I hope that we can find a really nice home there. Yeah, for sure. I think coming from Adelaide myself, like I think a lot of brands uh, in Sydney and Melbourne are going to look, independent brands are going to look to what you're doing and how you launch in Adelaide and, and maybe do the same because I think all the brands that I speak to at the moment who are born out of Melbourne or born out of Sydney are uh, are going to Brisbane, yeah, right? Brisbane is hot. Um, but Adelaide is the other one that's sort of coming up hot. So it's quite interesting to see what's going to happen over it's, the next five it's, years. It's so cool, man. I mean, if you look at Adelaide, I mean, even um, even just Jake Kelly doing that pop-up he mm. did at Pirate Life and just, you know, slinging some good meat on some open coals. Like I think the benchmark is at the same standard of quality, but the innovation's much, much, much more exciting. And yep. I think that's what makes a really cool hospitality industry is people want to give things a go. I think Adelaide, they absolutely epitomise that. Mm, absolutely. Um, well done on everything that's going on. I don't often tell you this, but <laughs> you're, um, thanks for being in hospitality. More, we need more people like you in hospitality who actually push the dial and make brands that really stand for something. So thank you for doing that. Um, what's the best way that people can find out more about Bells, either to come in or join the team as well? Yeah, good question, mate. I mean, I think... Um, I think in the world we live in now, social is still the best way. So, I mean, Bells is on Instagram, uh, Bells Hot Chicken. Uh, I think we're still on Facebook. But I don't think anyone's touched in the two years I've been there because I, I don't understand Facebook as a platform. But but also we have a phone number. I don't know where it goes, but it's one three hundred. It's one three hundred Hot Chicken. So I'd encourage people to call that, and we'll figure. So you understand where it goes. We'll just figure out who actually answers that phone and where it goes. Yeah, one three hundred Hot Chicken. Is that the one that's on the? Is that the one that's on the magnets? Uh, what was, oh no, the, mate, the, <laughs> the so, so the magnets, the story behind the magnets was quick story. So yes. COVID, how do you get into people's lives? How do you have a bit of fun with it? So we did a magnet and it was basically text if hungry. So everyone that ordered takeaway in COVID, we threw a magnet in the bag. It had a QR code that they could find our playlist. So that idea, we did a little disco ball key ring. We were like, what are the little one percenters we can yeah. throw on people's lives? And then we created a text number where if you text it, if you were hungry, you get a text back. Um, you need to find a magnet to text it. That's all I'll say. Okay. But it all still right. exists. Now I know what the one at, my one at home uh, actually does. So <laughs> thank you for that insight. Um, as always, linked up in the show notes of this podcast. Josh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, mate.
Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Raw, brought to you by Lightspeed and the Poe Network. We hope you really enjoyed the episode and we'd love for you to leave us a review and share this podcast with your friends in the industry. It would mean a lot to us and we'd love to hear your feedback on this series. To find out more about Lightspeed and how they can ignite your business in hospitality, you can find them at lightspeedhq.com.au. Thanks so much for tuning to another episode and until next time, stay well, everyone.